Welcome to Thoughts on Record, official podcast of the Ottawa Institute of Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. Each episode, we explore topics of interest to clinicians and mental health consumers from a cognitive behavioral perspective. I'm your host, Dr. P. Kelly. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. Dr. Michelle Todd completed her PhD in clinical psychology at the University of Toronto and her residency in clinical psychology at St. Joseph's Healthcare. She has completed training for prolonged exposure for PTSD with the Center for the Treatment and Study of Anxiety in Philadelphia. Dr. Todd provides and disseminates evidence-based assessment intervention for PTSD and other trauma-related symptoms, including depression and anxiety disorders. All right, Dr. Michelle Todd, welcome to Thoughts on Record. How are you doing today? I'm well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, you're, you're very, very welcome. Uh, Michelle, I am super delighted to have you on the podcast today. You were a very formative person for me in my own journey as a trauma therapist, and I feel incredibly lucky to have you to answer a bunch of questions that I know come up for me a lot that, that are asked of me or that I wonder about. I think it's going to be a really fun uh, discussion. I'm really looking forward to it. So am I. Excellent. So I, I guess, Michelle, just to start, uh, how did you get interested in trauma therapy it's a difficult area of practice in some ways. It forces us to encounter many different sort of, you know, very difficult human uh, scenarios, very strong emotions. What led you towards this area of practice despite all that? You know, I, it's, it's not something that I knew I was going to do until I was doing it. Um, I was working in, an, in another area. I was working in anxiety disorders. And at that time, PTSD was an anxiety disorder. Um, and I started getting interested in, you know, how do we offer therapy to these individuals who've, who've had a trauma history? Because it was something that we were seeing a lot in our clinics, whether it was in an anxiety clinic um, with people coming for treatment for other reasons, but who had a trauma history. But we were also seeing it in eating disorders clinics and substance use disorders clinics. And, um, you know, it was, it was very prevalent, the exposure to trauma and difficulties with PTSD. I started realizing how um, you know underreported this is, how underdiagnosed it is, and how underserviced this area is. Um, and I've I've never I've been working with trauma ever since. Um, you know, as you said, I, I think it I think it does kind of you know cover a lot of different uh, emotions, um, and I think that's something that we'll probably talk about later. But uh, it is it, it it's at the same time an area where we know we have really good treatments. So as, as difficult as it may be for somebody to experience these symptoms, and in some cases, you know, to work with trauma, we know that we have really good treatments. Uh, and, and it's really amazing to see people be able to recover from, from you know, these, these kinds of experiences that they've had. Excellent. And I can't wait to talk to you about these treatments. And I agree with those with that misconception that perhaps that trauma is not treatable or that people have to live with it indefinitely. And there's no reason for that with the treatments that we do have available. Uh, Michelle, there's going to be a number of clinicians in the audience who will be very familiar with PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder. However, there may be some folks listening who, who may not be quite as familiar. Can you briefly describe what post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD is and how the, the kinds of ways that it impacts people? Mm-hmm. So PTSD is a mental health condition, mental health diagnosis that can happen after any type of trauma, uh, after one trauma, after multiple traumas. Uh, and it's the only mental health condition that really requires somebody to have experienced a specific kind of event in order to get this diagnosis. And I think the symptoms that people most often recognize as being associated with PTSD, or so the cardinal symptoms, are the intrusions. Um, so these are the ways that 
trauma kind of comes back to haunt people in their lives through intrusive thoughts and memories and flashbacks. It could be nightmares, um, really having strong reactions to, to anything that might remind somebody of the trauma. And because all of that is so distressing, many people with PTSD try and push these things away, right? So, so we try to avoid things that are painful to us. That's a normal human response. Um, so we do see a lot of avoidance with PTSD, avoiding things that are internal to us, our own memory, emotions, and also avoiding things that are external to us. So people or places or situations that might remind somebody of, of what they've experienced. I think the things that people don't necessarily realize can be part of PTSD as well, or the way that it changes how we think and how we feel. So a lot of people with PTSD end up feeling really badly about themselves. They either carry a lot of responsibility for what happened when it's not theirs um, to be responsible for. And it can be difficult to trust other people as well, because a lot of trauma, as we know, involves some sort of interpersonal violation. So people's beliefs become really disrupted with trauma and particularly with repeated trauma. And it changes how we feel as well. So people often report feeling really disconnected or like they're not able to experience the same kind of joy that they had before. They might feel like they're going through the motions in life. And lastly, it, it leads to people feeling really keyed up. It's almost like you're in a constant state of arousal. And so people um, might be really uncharacteristically irritable um, when they weren't before, might have trouble sleeping or concentrating. People become really vigilant. So being really watchful and on guard for things that might be signs of, of threat or, or a negative outcome happening. So those are the, the symptoms of PTSD, but it becomes much, much more than the symptoms because when people are thinking that way about themselves and about other people and they're avoiding things that they used to like to do and they're feeling uncomfortable in their own skin, it really starts to impact relationships and work and school um, and identity. So it really gets sort of tentacles into many different areas of life. And that's where um, the real damage kind of comes from as well with PTSD. Well, I totally concur. My uh, PTSD clients typically have three, if not four of the legs of the table wobbly at any given time, right? Not only is it the mental health presentation, there's typically a physical overlay to it as well, perhaps exacerbated by chronic stress. Their sort of core romantic relationship is often in uh, difficult shape. Family systems are often impacted in very important ways. Their relationship with work uh, can often be very disrupted directly and indirectly. So and that's what I kind of love about trauma work in a way is that you get to touch on so many interesting clinical areas within the scope of the care of one particular individual. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously it would be best if this individual was not affected in a multidimensional way, but it is what it is. And it makes the clinical work very rich and very multi-layered. I think people are fearful of that, right? If, if it feels like, my goodness, there's so many different areas um, where I'm experiencing difficulties, it can often feel extremely overwhelming. Um, and it's difficult to kind of see the forest for the trees and how are we going to get through this? Um, but I agree with you. One of the things I really like about working with, with trauma is that treating these symptoms often has really wide ranging effects. So yes, the symptoms reduce, but all of these other areas can start to improve as well. 
I also really like the existential challenges that come up in trauma work, like like trying to make sense of things that don't make sense or reasoning with the unreasonable. And I think, you know, God, I feel a little bit selfish saying this, but a lot of the trauma work that I've done has helped me to grow as a person sort of, you know, on the side or adjacent to that therapeutic process. It really gets you thinking about a lot of deep issues and challenges that can come up in just as part of being a human being. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that people with PTSD often feel about themselves is like they're somehow different from other people. And one of the things that's, um, you know, that's one of the big myths about PTSD is that there's nothing different about individuals who have these symptoms or, or don't. It's, we'll talk about that in a second, but this is sort of the part of the human condition and, and um, you know, recovering from things that are so impactful is something that is a big task for anyone to do. Some people, um, for many reasons, might have the ability to do that naturally, you know, in their lives. But for others, that's a process that can become really disruptive. It's nothing to do with the person. Um, it has everything to do with, you know, other factors that may be at play. Absolutely. I, I, I love that point. And from an evolutionary perspective, I mean, I've often had the, the thought or wondered about, is PTSD even truly a, a disorder? And, and what I mean by that is that not that people aren't experiencing very profound symptoms, but is this not maybe a window into the, the depth of the threat and that we had to navigate sort of in our, in our ancestral past? Well, it's, you know, it's a really good point because um, one of the things that I think our field has learned about trauma is that most people who have any kind of trauma, even if they don't go on to develop PTSD symptoms, have the symptoms that we call PTSD in, in the, you know, the immediate aftermath. It's, it's a very natural way of reacting to any kind of threat. And when you think about it, it's probably designed for us to be able to protect ourselves, right? None of us want to re-experience any of these things. So it's almost like we develop coping responses to um, to protect ourselves from having having something like this happen again. And unfortunately, trauma is really, really common. Um, and maybe not every trauma is the same, but I'm sure people listening can think about something that they might have experienced that would be uh, either traumatic or extremely stressful, right? Like it, I experienced a car accident, you know, when I was in university. And I can remember, you know, thinking and feeling in some of the similar ways, right? I was afraid of driving and I sort of tried to avoid it as best I could. I, I didn't know if driving was safe. I thought it might've been a crummy driver. Maybe I did something that made me responsible. And that's a really simple example. But I think many people have these reactions after a trauma. Um, and for some people, you know, we get back into maybe doing the regular things that we were doing before. And through that we heal. Right? And, and how does that happen is, is we start to realize little by little that maybe things aren't as threatening as the trauma taught us that they were. But for some, for some people, that process gets really disrupted. Uh, and so these are, these are symptoms that people become stuck in, but they're very normal responses that most people have felt at some time or another. I love it. Again, all great points. I think one of the things that I end up talking with clients about from a compassionate angle is there's there's almost a wisdom in the traumatic response where it's like, hey, something incredibly important happened back there. And we don't want to allow you to keep going down the road unless we've had a real good sense of what happened so that we can optimize you for life now. Right. So that, that packet of information is just too critical. And so it forces the issue, right? Like it's going to make it intrusive. Like you cannot get away from this. And as mm -hmm. painful as that is, I think it speaks to the importance of processing what has happened to us. And 
I guess one of the stuck points could be emotional or cognitive avoidance, which I'm sure we'll talk about. But there's some really interesting ways in which people can get stuck in a very naturalistic process. Yeah. And I think it's such a, you know, the the therapies that that we currently use are kind of counterintuitive in that sense, because it's asking people to do the thing that they most want to avoid. And, And I can understand having been through something painful that the first thing that a person would want to do is to not go there uh, and, and try and get as far away from it as possible. And like what you're saying is um, it, there's an importance to this. And, and this is how everybody heals. It's not just how people with PTSD heal. It, this, is, this is sort of the human healing process. Michelle, I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions kind of wrapped up in one here. Uh, we, we, we've talked a little bit about time course and how normal it is to have a sort of a PTSD-like reaction in the aftermath of a traumatic event. How long do we typically regard as being sort of within the scope of an expected reaction versus when it makes that transition over to what we would diagnostically call PTSD? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, some of the research that has addressed this has sort of followed people um, from the time of, you know, immediately after the trauma and onwards. And typically the course of natural recovery happens within the first, you know, several months after a trauma. Um, So we look at time, right? We don't want to um, pathologize uh, a response that's that's very normal. Um, We don't want to pathologize a response at all. But we don't want to call something a disorder when it reflects a natural recovery process. We don't want to intervene too soon. I think the other things that we consider in addition to time would be how severe are the symptoms uh, and how disruptive are they as well. So even if somebody is, you know, three months out from a trauma, but they're really struggling and they're having very significant symptoms and, you know, it's causing disruption in their lives. We may want to intervene sooner rather than later in that case and not allow them to sort of continue down the, a path that's going to be unproductive. Okay. So with that lens out on the table, how common is PTSD after a trauma? And I'm wondering if it perhaps varies depending on the type of trauma that we're talking about, like mm-hmm. war versus a sexual assault versus a car accident. Do, do we know anything from that perspective? Mm-hmm. So trauma is, is unfortunately really common. So more than, more than 50% of people will have some kind of trauma. So one, one um, single incident trauma, many people will have more than one trauma. PTSD after trauma is, is relatively less common. So we know that um, not the majority of people are somehow able to recover on their own. Um, we do have data, the, 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 the literature um, shows us that not every type of trauma is necessarily as likely to lead to PTSD as a mental health outcome. So um, for example, natural disasters or accidents um, are, you know, traumatic and people can develop PTSD symptoms in response to any kind of trauma, but we know that um, sexual assault and combat trauma are two of the types of traumas that may be most likely to lead to um, negative outcomes to PTSD. And there may be lots of reasons for that. Um, you know, it, 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 it might have to do with the interpersonal nature of a trauma or whether a trauma is uh, stigmatized, like how, how easy is it for us to talk about some of these things that happen to us. So a car accident or um, a natural disaster, maybe that's collectively experienced might be a little bit easier for some people to talk about because we know that we're not alone. Uh, but for 
um, sexual trauma, for example, we know that that's something that people have a lot of difficulty talking about. Uh, and that might be part of what disrupts their ability to naturally to, to recover naturally. Um, you know, the severity of the trauma, for example. So all of, all of these kinds of things can impact uh, the likelihood of somebody developing PTSD. One thing I've been thinking about is sort of the culturally bound nature, uh, perhaps, of PTSD. Uh, in Lisa Feldman Barrett's book, How Emotions Are Made, she talks about the culturally bound nature of social, uh, excuse me, of emotional concepts. There's sort of an agreed upon social reality. And I believe it's a Filipino concept that she mentioned, like something to the extent to the, the, the feeling that one feels after a successful round of combat or something, right? Like it was just sort of acknowledging the euphoria that can come with de defeating an, an opponent definitively. And I was wondering, you know, so the trauma therapist in me wondered, okay, would that help protect people perhaps from developing PTSD because they have a framework through which to understand some of the very complex emotional uh, reactions that can come up? And I've, I've done a lot of work with uh, the Canadian military. And often what is so difficult for folks is they have this experience, say, in war, and some of the, the reactions they have are so incongruent with their sense of self that is unexplainable and plunges them in sort of into a fight or flight type of experience around it. Michelle, I appreciate that's a, that's a lot that I just sort of downloaded there. But what do you think about that idea of cultural concepts maybe kind of, you know, influencing the way that we see trauma or experience trauma? I think it's an, an important lens that we need to consider. Um, and I'm wondering if it, if it goes to, you know, the meaning that we make of the events that we experience, right? And this is very central to um, PTSD symptoms. It's very central to PTSD recovery. So I imagine that there could be uh, different lenses through which we view these kinds of events. Um, but even with it, we know that PTSD exists cross-culturally um, and is more common in areas where there is more conflict, right? So we know that it's not a cultural construct in and of itself. Um, but I'm wondering if, you know, the idea that you're talking about is, like I said, how do we make meaning of these things? Um, and so, you know, for events that really violate somebody's fundamental values, that becomes something that uh, can be very difficult to reconcile. That person may be able to reconcile it on their own through talking to, you know, other people who've had the same kinds of experiences, but that's something that they may get stuck with where it's just so dissonant that, um, that it's difficult for them to integrate that into how I thought the world was supposed to work, uh, who I thought I was what I thought about other people, right? And that's sometimes the work of therapy. Michelle, I want to ask you a few more little kind of diagnostic, about a few more diagnostic conundrums that come up for me. Uh, in, in private practice or, or in practice, the PTSD diagnosis seems to have, I want to say loosened up a little bit. It now seems to be very loosely applied to a number of things like workplace bullying, which is no doubt traumatic. I'm certainly not doubting that, but it may not map as closely to that A1 criteria as a traditional lens on PTSD. What have you seen? What do you think about this? Do, do we need to revisit the concept? Is it fine as is? Do we, and do we need to have other adjacent concepts to explain these kind of traumatic things, but perhaps are sort of lowercase trauma as opposed to uppercase trauma? Uh, what do you think about this idea? It's hmm, a good question. I mean, as a clinician, I often think about, you know, the, the main utility to me of making a diagnosis is um, the way that it informs what kind of treatment might work for a person, right? So um, when I think about the, the idea of a PTSD diagnosis, 
we do differentiate between something that you know, the DSM defines as a trauma versus something that's very legitimately impactful, but that we may not think of as a trauma. It might be a stressor, for example. Um, so in making a diagnosis, I might not call that PTSD, but then I think we need to follow the symptoms, right? So some people who've had really stressful experiences that may not meet that threshold do tend to experience some of the symptoms that we consider to be trauma-related symptoms. And if somebody is really experiencing true intrusions and they're avoiding a lot of stuff and they think unhelpful things about themselves and they're always really aroused, that's an individual that may benefit from the same kinds of treatments that we might offer to somebody with PTSD because likely the mechanisms that are keeping these symptoms going might be the same, right? But I also think about just like PTSD isn't the only important mental health outcome after a trauma, um, trauma can lead to other kinds of presentations as well. PTSD, or, or um, it's not the only important outcome of other types of stressors either, right? So we need to consider, is this really sort of trauma-like symptoms or is this, is this coming um, to the fore for the person in a different kind of way? Maybe, maybe they're experiencing symptoms of depression, substance use, adjustment difficulties, anxiety disorders. Um, so for me, that's what, it, that's what it comes down to in a clinical context is what, what is going to help this person? No, couldn't agree more. And I find myself using trauma-informed uh, CBT protocols for folks who haven't necessarily gone through, again, what we'd call a, a sort of a formal trauma from a DSM lens and found it really effective. I find I do have to be careful about the messaging to clients like you know, with respect to, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm using a trauma-informed uh, sort of framework here, but I'm not necessarily, I'm not communicating that you have PTSD. And, and that, that can be very tricky, especially where there's litigation involved or perhaps a, a, you know, a, a, a bigger process than purely the clinical one that we're engaged in. Right. We might end up calling it, like you said, something different, right? And, and I, think, um, I think we have a ways to go in terms of what's the most effective um, term that we use to, to describe these symptoms. So right now, I might call that, uh, if I was writing a report, I might call that an other specified trauma and stressor-related disorder, because that's what, that's what our manual <laughs> It. And, and, you know, I just don't know if that communicates something very effective to an individual experiencing it. So we, we have to do a lot of explanation around what, what this means, right? Does, what does this mean for you as an individual? Absolutely. I mean, it's kind of invalidating in a sense, right? It's like, we don't actually have a real category to put this in other than sort of the not otherwise specified kind of bin, you know, like the, there is a message of sort of, you know, in, invalidation built into it, just structurally, I guess. Yeah. And I, th I think, for an individual, it can certainly feel that way. So, you know, an individual who's experienced something doesn't necessarily experience a dividing line between what the DSM considers a trauma and what is very, very stressful, but not defined as a trauma. Um, and all that that person is, is, is what their symptoms are. Um, so I think the validation part of it is, is very important. Just as a side note, I mean, as a clinician, what I've seen is a lot of GAD and a lot of perfectionism that flows from trauma, like without any PTSD, uh, just a really heightened sort of uh, threat detection system, I guess. Yeah. And when you think of it, it, it makes total sense, right? So if we conceptualize PTSD kind of as a, as a disorder of non-recovery from trauma, right? So these are, these are, um, we are getting stuck in normal symptoms and they might not be experiencing intrusions or nightmares or flashbacks, but they can be very, 
vigilant about thinking about what might happen in the future and what are all of the what ifs, right? Or the perfectionism, like you said, um, you know, that's often a reflection of, I felt like I was not in control of this trauma. And maybe there's a belief that if I, you know, can, can maintain a sense of control uh, over everything, maybe that's a way for me to um, not experience these kinds of negative outcomes in the future. And I think that, you know, PTSD hardly ever exists on its own. So whether that's something that is co-occurring with a PTSD diagnosis or whether that's something that's occurring on its own, it definitely becomes part of what we need to consider from a treatment perspective. No, absolutely. I mean, I can reflect as a human being and a clinician, I had a very uh, challenging outcome with a client and I know how I responded in the moment was to try and lock every process down right? Just, just to sort of reclaim complete control over my sort of therapeutic territory. And all it did was make me more anxious at the end of the day. So I, could, I can absolutely resonate with the reflex around it. I've also lived the consequence of trying to control your entire life and, and seeing that it doesn't tend to work out very well uh, in, in a lot of unintended ways. But, it, you know, you, of course, you mean to do right by yourself, but it just doesn't work. Absolutely. A lot of these coping responses um, only have, you know, unintentional negative outcomes in the long run, but we can understand them. You can understand the motivation for nobody wants to experience a sense of loss of control or the idea of, you know, re-experiencing something incredibly negative that's happened. So it's such a natural human instinct. Michelle, another diagnostic conundrum that comes up a lot is this idea of differentiating between complex PTSD and borderline personality disorder and knowing that you, someone could have both at the same time. Mm -hmm. But complex PTSD often has that sense that the person's nervous system has kind of organized itself around threat detection, and it may have even sort of permeated the personality structure. Again, what's the difference between that and borderline personality disorder? I'm not exactly sure, right? But so mm. I guess two questions. What do you think about the complex PTSD construct that shows up more, I believe, exclusively in ICD versus the, the, the DSM? And, and yes. then how do you think about sort of maybe more systemic structural manifestations of PTSD uh, as a function of chronic trauma versus kind of more characterological day-to-day, -day, I guess, kind of manifestations? I know there's a lot there, but mm -hmm. I'd be really curious to get your, your take on this. Yeah, it's a good question. And I, I certainly don't know that I have the answers to that, but I, I, you know, thinking it through, I'd be curious to hear what, what your thoughts are on that as well. When I'm thinking about complex, I'm thinking of how do the symptoms present? Um, so one way of, for me of looking at that is, you know, are we referring to um, complexity in terms of co-occurring difficulties, which is very commonly the case with PTSD. So, you know, oftentimes people with PTSD also have um, mood disorders or other uh, difficulties with anxiety, substance use perhaps, because all of them are sort of functionally related to one another. Um, I think what you were referring to is, is interesting because our DSM-5, the thing that we, the, the, the system that we most commonly use to make diagnoses really doesn't distinguish between, I don't know if the term would be simple PTSD or complex PTSD. It's just a set of 20 symptoms. The ICD formulation is really interesting because it does make that distinction um, and it doesn't make it on the basis of the nature of the trauma, but on the presentation of the symptoms. So to what extent is sort of affect dysregulation present for an individual? To me, I feel that's really important because, again, it's going to drive what does the person need for treatment, perhaps. So is this going to be somebody who, um, yes, might need some trauma processing, but might need other interventions either concurrently or prior to or after or, or all of the above? Um, 
So I think we have a long ways to go in terms of understanding exactly what do we mean when we say that? And then what does it imply from a clinical perspective? For sure. And I guess for the, for the record, I mean, I think I try to think of it. I don't know if transdiagnostic is quite the right word, but it's more like who's the person in front of me? What's going on for them? How do I see all the pieces Mm -hmm. fitting together? What would be the interventions I could bring to bear to help them? And yes, in the context of a report or something similar, I might, you know, of course, I might have to come down with respect to a specific label, but I'm really more interested in sort of the person's overall profile and, and how everything kind of commingles with one another, you know, whether it be the depression and maybe the characterological kind of stuff, the trauma piece, they're all, none of them is, is conforming to clean lines as we would in a report necessarily. Mm-hmm. I don't know that there are, you know, clean lines when it comes to, uh, when it comes to treatment or people's experiences. I think, you know, sometimes those clean lines help us because they give us direction. I know, for example, um, when I know that PTSD is part of the picture, I feel a little bit empowered by that because treatments that will, that will address those symptoms, right? But as you say, the challenge can be, so how do we treat the whole person? Because the person is not these symptoms and they may be experiencing a lot of other difficulties. So it becomes a matter of, you know, making a treatment plan that's really individualized to what the person is experiencing. And that might be different in every case. So somebody might benefit from treatment from, um, of perfectionism along with PTSD treatment. Others may need some emotion regulation prior to engaging in trauma therapy, whereas some don't. Um, and that's the, that's, I think the, the, the sort of interesting work of putting our heads together with, with our clients and figuring out what is going to work for you. Michelle, are there any algorithms or rules or principles that you adhere to in terms of structuring the order of treatment? So for instance, if someone comes in with a lot of uh, emotional dysregulation and they wouldn't perhaps be able to tolerate some of what's going to come up in prolonged exposure or going through a trauma script or impact statement, things like that, w- would you automatically prioritize that? Or are, are there times where you'd want to do that kind of regulating work within the, the trauma therapy proper itself? How do you think through that? Mm-hmm. Again, I think this is going to be one of the questions where, you know, where our literature helps us eventually, where where, where I think there's still gaps in what science can tell us about who benefits from what and when. But in terms of, you know, how do I think through it? I I think I end up borrowing some concepts from the DBT literature in terms of triaging, you know, how, what does this client need? And and if if, if our goal is to get here, what are the steps that we need to take in order to make that happen? So, um, I think safety always comes first. So if there are any sort of risks, so risk to the person, risk to other people, um, self-injury, for example, uh, substance use, I don't think is a contraindication to doing treatment, but if it's to the extent that uh, it's causing really significant risk to the person or it's going to impair their ability to come in for treatment, we may need to treat, we always need to treat safety first. Right? And then then I think about if, if there's no safety risks, um, you know, is the person experiencing any other mental health symptoms that might um, be causing more impairment or more distress than the PTSD is? Um, and so, uh, you know, our language is what's primary. So if there's something else that's taking precedence over the PTSD, then maybe we need to treat that first. And that can be so many different things. But if PTSD is really primary, then I'm thinking, are there any other of these symptoms that are, that are going to get in the way? Uh, for somebody coming to treatment or for somebody, 
you know, being able to get the most out of treatment. So depression, for example, you know, de- depression is so common in people with PTSD. Like it's, it's, it's difficult not to have your mood impacted when you have these symptoms. So if themselves, they're having trouble getting out of bed in the morning or engaging in basic self-care. In that case, I might want to treat those symptoms before we do trauma processing, because we have a good sense that the person is probably not going to be able to get the most out of their their therapy work in that case. Um, you know, and then then we think about anything else that might be treatment interfering. So motivation, for example, um, as we know, I, I mean, it, it's um, nobody who's living with PTSD wants to keep having those symptoms at the same time. Um, you know, uh, if the function of avoidance is, is to protect ourselves and being vigilant is making us feel safe, it can be really difficult to, to think about letting, letting go of that. Um, and so sometimes that's part of the work that we need to do. And then if all of that has been taken care of, then I'm thinking about um, the trauma-focused therapy. But in terms of, um, you, know, uh, you know, emotion regulation, for example, we know that PTSD in and of itself can cause a lot of emotion dysregulation. Um, so to even to get back to our question from before of distinguishing between PTSD and BPD, um, a lot of people who have PTSD symptoms also have a lot of emotion dysregulation. And unless there's you know, a really clear indication from their history that this was pre-existing to their trauma, I'm really hesitant to call that borderline personality symptoms because of the impact that PTSD in and of itself can have. So I'm, I'm kind of erring on the side of, can we treat these symptoms and see, see where you end up? For some people, if I'm thinking that that emotion dysregulation is coming from the PTSD symptoms themselves, and it's not to the extent that, you know, it's going to impair their ability to engage, I'm, I'm wanting to get to the trauma processing sooner rather than later, because that's the thing that I think is going to, you know, help them in the end. Perfect. Oh man, I can't wait to uh, drill down into the the treatment piece. I, I just have a couple more questions for you before we get to that particular part. You know, of course, people who have experienced trauma have had terrible things happen to them where they experienced terrible things. And as a function of this, it can sometimes bring them into contact with legal proceedings or, or third-party benefits types of I- environments, things like that. I, I I do feel like there's special considerations around willingness and, and PTSD from that perspective, where sometimes there can be a very strong disincentive to, I don't know how, how else to say it other than sort of t- to get better. And I want to be very clear. I am not suggesting that people are malingering. What I've seen more often is that people don't want to feel like they're gaming the system or that they don't want to feel guilty, you know, for, for receiving something for, for, you know, for improving. Um, Michelle, do you have any sort of a, a sense of that or, or how as clinicians we can help clients assess the true risk of quote unquote getting better versus staying stuck for fear of some sort of consequence befalling them? Mm-hmm. I think that's something that's so important to talk about before we start treatment, right? So it's almost something that I might bring up as a matter of course for Eddie, but because I assume that anybody who's coming for treatment for, for PTSD uh, might have some very obvious reasons for wanting to get better. Of course, like I, like we talked about, nobody with PTSD wants uh, to carry these symptoms. At the same time, there can be lots of reasons why getting better is quite scary. Um, it can be, um, you know, for some people, it can be a bit of a catch twenty two. If they've got benefits that are attached to the presence of symptoms, 
where does that leave me if I get better? So there can be questions like that, that we, you know, therapist and, and client may not have all the answers to. We may need to figure that out and address, address those fears. Uh, it can be fears around the expectations of others. So if I've been um, experiencing these symptoms for a long time and we've got a certain family dynamic or expectations around work, what will that be like if I get better? Um, or even sometimes it can be letting, letting go of the symptoms themselves. What would it be like to live, um, without that level of vigilance and open myself up to that? So all of those things I think are really important in terms of, um, the conflict, the inner conflict that a person can experience when they're coming for this kind of treatment. No, very well said. And, uh, I, yeah, I totally agree. I think it's important to have really frank conversations at the beginning, I think one one conundrum that seems to come up a lot is that, you know, we can, you know, I'll say, quote unquote, fairly easily resolve some of the intrusive symptoms, right? Like the fight or flight kind of stuff, the, the, the moral injury or perhaps a sense of betrayal, maybe by an organization or a workplace that seems that can be harder to resolve. And it's a challenge because the person perhaps could physically go back to work. But the emotional and interpersonal milieu that is still unresolved at the workplace might be an additional barrier. Um, so you get these mm-hmm. sort of, I'd say, multi-tiered recoveries, I guess. It makes it very difficult, right? Where someone's kind of recovered from one angle, but not from another. And it's not clear that you'd have the platform to, to get them across the finish line with this other tier that we're talking about. I think there's so many um, you know, interesting avenues in what you just said. Um, you know, what at a, at a really basic level, when I'm thinking about treatment, um, and if we're talking about, you know, PTSD proper, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of thinking about, can we help this person to decrease some of the symptoms and put them in a better position to make a decision that's meaningful for them about whatever it is that they want to do, whether that's returning to work or not, um, is not, is not something that um, that I'm necessarily invested in as as a clinician. It's something that I want the person be able to be able to decide on their own. When we're talking about moral injury, I think that gets into a whole other question around, um, you know, how do we view that from a clinical perspective? Uh, does moral injury lead to PTSD, or is that something that exists on its own? Um, I don't know if we know the answer to those questions yet, because sometimes people who experience moral injury really do experience PTSD related symptoms in response to that. And maybe the right treatment is trauma processing, but sometimes the symptoms are a little bit different. They're not intrusive. Maybe somebody has more ruminative symptoms about the kinds of experiences that they've had, and they might need a different kind of treatment. We've, we've got some, you know, interesting emerging treatments coming out for moral injury that involve the idea of how do we heal and recover from loss and betrayal, for example, how do we have, how do we sort of restore our faith in humanity? And that might be another part of the work that needs to be done. If that's part of the picture for someone. Michelle, just for someone who may not be familiar with the term moral injury, would you mind just painting that picture a little bit, just so that the, uh, the, the listener can understand what that construct's all about? So a moral injury, and again, there, there's people much um, more qualified than myself to speak about this, but the way that I understand moral injury is um, that this is, it, it can be, but is not necessarily a trauma. Um, it's an experience that sort of violates a person's fundamental values about the world or themselves or other people. Um, it's almost like a, an injury to the soul. Um, so you were talking about betrayal before, and we know that that's one 
um, of the very significant experiences that people can have that they that they feel is morally injurious. So when a, another person or a system behaves in a way that's um, uh, you know against the rules of society or violates a, uh, an important value, that can feel like a betrayal. Um, some types of loss can be morally injurious. So those are the kinds of experiences that we're talking about when we're we're thinking about moral injuries. As a, as a public service announcement, if there's any em- employers listening, I mean, I have to I have to say that the biggest challenge in getting people back to work is not what happened to them at the workplace; it's how they are subsequently treated uh, th- thereafter. Right. So I think you know, yeah. for, so for employers who are obviously looking at a, at things from a bottom line perspective in terms of disability premiums and you know loss of function and all that kind of stuff. There's a lot of self-inflicted wounds going on there with respect to how people are treated once, uh, you know, something happens in the workplace, which is, sometimes is understandable depending on the work, right? If it's a, a paramedic or a police officer, I mean, those are those are positions where things are just going to happen, right? But mm-hmm. but there's more choice about how people are treated in the aftermath of that than I think is, uh, than we're willing to acknowledge. Yeah, so I might, in the context of my work, expect that I would be exposed to certain kinds of events but I didn't expect that people wouldn't have my back when that happened. Exactly. Um, and, and how can I come to terms with that part? How can I go back and trust again? And again, I'll, I'll make this point again, is that we, we can very readily address a lot of the fight or flight kinds of symptoms that go with PTSD. But when we have someone confronted going back to a workplace where there's been betrayal, it can create a real stuck point and understandably. So and I, I, Michelle, I take the same tactic, sort of a values driven approach. It's like, Hey, given everything that you've learned in your recovery, given what you've learned about maybe your over-engagement with work or perfectionism or things that may have set up some, some of the preconditions for uh, facilitating this happening. Um, what do you want to do? You know, what, what would you like to do with, you know, your professional life moving forward and with zero agenda. It, and I always tell clients that it literally makes no difference to me what you do, uh, but I would really love to see you pursue it in a values driven fashion and in an informed mm-hmm. way. Absolutely. I think one of the things that, that people sometimes don't consider about PTSD is that it's, it goes so um, far beyond fear, right? So we used to think of this as a, as a, as a fear-based condition, but, but it involves so many different emotions. I mean, uh, sadness and grief and guilt and shame. Um, and all of those emotions need to be part of what's on the table when we're, we're working on this processing. And it's not, it's never about, um, you know, forgetting what happened or whitewashing what happened or, or, or trying to work to a point where we are telling ourselves that it was okay. It really is about th- this really was the experience that you had. And it really was as bad as it was. And, how can we help you move forward with meaning so that uh, that experience that was bad enough uh, in the past doesn't continue to kind of come back to haunt you in the present and, and impact the way that you're thinking and feeling and, and doing things now? So well said. And I think that's a really nice segue into talking about the treatments per se. So, Michelle, maybe just to start maybe very generally, or you can speak about this in the context of a specific treatment from a CBT or cognitive behavioral perspective, how do we conceptualize PTSD? So I think, I I think I'm, um, you know, mentioned this, this term before is the idea of PTSD as being almost a a syndrome of non-recovery from trauma, right? So part of our understanding is that these are normal symptoms 
and that some people for some reasons get stuck in these normal symptoms. And why is that, right? So from a CBT perspective, we're thinking about the ways that um, people may be, may be coping with their symptoms that are unintentionally um, reinforcing or, or keeping their, their symptoms going. So we can't do anything about the fact that a trauma happened or that somebody developed PTSD, but what we can do is try to understand what are the things that are keeping it going in the here and now. Um, and you know, the, the two main things that we think about are how has a trauma or traumas impacted the way people are thinking about things, about themselves, about other people, about life in general. So we know that part of the maintenance is the way that PTSD has, has changed their thinking process. And then the other factor that we look at is, well, what are they doing in response to that? So understandably, you know, a lot of people are engaging in a lot of avoidance and avoidance. I use that term really broadly because sometimes it's really, um, you know, I won't go to a certain place or I won't see certain people, but it can be a lot more subtle than that as well. Right. So I'm avoiding my own experiences, maybe by keeping myself extremely busy or, you know, through other forms of distraction, maybe it's substance use. Um, maybe it's just putting things on a shelf uh, mentally or putting things in a box. Right. And that in the short term helps us to feel better. Right? It allows us to avoid the pain that comes along with, with these symptoms. It's only in the long run that we start to experience that, you know, we, we, we're continuously in this cycle where I always have to push this back and it keeps coming back because um, as you said, something really important has happened to me and I haven't had the chance to digest it. So that's how we're sort of understanding PTSD maintenance from a cognitive behavioral perspective and our treatments um, although they have different strategies, they're all trying to address those maintenance factors in some ways. And so the, the two most common from a CBT perspective are cognitive processing therapy and prolonged exposure. And I think you, one of your other guests uh, has probably spoken very well about cognitive processing therapy, and I, I may not do it as much justice as, as Dr. Candice Munson. Um, she was one of the founders of this therapy, but basically that, that form of therapy is almost a direct route to the thoughts, right? So if we know that thoughts and beliefs are disrupted by, by PTSD, then how can we help people to uh, identify what, what meaning does this, do, do these traumas carry for me? And then begin to address um, through cognitive strategies, you know, challenging the kinds of beliefs that people have around specific areas that we know to be affected by trauma. So beliefs about, you know, my own personal safety and can I trust other people about power and control. So, so to what extent has this made me feel helpless and about my own esteem and interpersonal relationships? So that's one of the major approaches. And the second one is prolonged exposure. Um, and, and that's sort of a, almost a backdoor into the thoughts. We're still trying to do the same thing. We're still trying to shift a person's perspective, but the strategies that we use are a little bit different. So in that, in that form of therapy, we're actually asking someone to verbally revisit the content of the trauma with us um, repetitively in order to be able to, again, to identify and shift some of those meanings through having corrective experiences and the opportunity to really come to terms with and digest this trauma that they haven't had the opportunity to do yet. Michelle, for a consumer that might be out there uh, in the audience and they're hearing you describe these trauma therapies, again, it's got that counterintuitive flavor to it of like, oh man, I'm going to have to talk about this stuff. C can you 
perhaps like normalize and maybe uh, help acculturate people to what trauma therapy is like from the perspective of the recipient uh, of the trauma? Because it's it's notoriously hard in some ways to get people to start, but the, the, the experience of starting is often very rewarding and meaningful for, for people once they've had a course of therapy. So can you just speak to that or demystify that a little bit for someone who may be on the fence thinking about doing trauma therapy? Mm-hmm. I think the hardest part is making that decision to come and get help because this is a scary thing to do. And, and we know that the therapies that we currently have, you know, maybe this will evolve, maybe in 10 years from now, maybe we'll have a, a different um, set of therapies on the menu. But right now, all of our therapies sort of capitalize on what do we know about how humans recover um, from anything, right? How do humans heal? Uh, so I think the first thing is just, um, you know, we're not going to, um, take a deep dive into this therapy with anyone before we really thoroughly discuss it with them and prepare them for treatment, right? So part of it is let's talk about, you know, these symptoms and how normal they are and help you understand your experience of symptoms. And then we spend a lot of time talking about what does therapy look like and not just what we're going to do and, and, and how we're going to do it, but why we're going to do it, right? I spend a lot of time talking to patients because these are counterintuitive interventions about why would I ask you to revisit the trauma if this is something that we, you and I both know you really don't want to do and you've been working so hard to avoid? And so we talk a lot about how the recovery process happens, right? So um, the process that I was talking about before when we're asking people to verbally revisit the trauma. Um, so, you know, it's important for a client to understand as I'm going through this, how is it going to work for me? So you know, it's really important to be able to revisit the trauma in order to be able to take stock of what happened. You know, if that we use the analogy oftentimes, like, like if this trauma is a book uh, and this is the, the scariest chapter, you know, there's things in your life that make it pop open to this, this very scary chapter over and over again. And right now what we're doing is slamming the book shut. And part of what this treatment is going to help you to do is to open the book and to read that chapter from start to finish. And we're gonna read it together. Um, and that will give you a chance to really put the story together in a more cohesive way. Think about it differently. Think about yourself differently. Recognize that um, this memory is not gonna break you um, and to, to put it in the past where it belongs, right? So it doesn't always feel like every time I think about this, it's like it's happening all over again. I think that's going to be really helpful for people to hear. And now I have a clinician reassurance seeking question for you, <laughs> basically. Mm-hmm. So I think in practice, um, you know, I'm kind of a mixer and a matcher. And, you know, I, th- there's elements of PE that I, I love. There's elements of CPT that I love. And, and I know probably if you were to talk to the originators of either therapeutic technology, this would be strictly a no-no. But in practice, I do like to blend elements together depending on what's going on for the person. Is it kind of more feel that, like it has that fight or flight element? Is it more those cognitive stuck points? It, you know, is it a blend of the two? Michelle, what do you, what do you think about that? That idea of, you know, try, in an informed way, I mean, assuming all things being equal, maybe blending the technologies a little bit. What, what do you think about that? Hmm. Well, I can tell you, I can tell you what some research says, and then I can tell you, you know, what I think about it as an individual clinician. So I know that this is actually something that's been studied. So both the CPT literature and the PE literature have actually done studies about, you know, what happens if we add uh, cognitive restructuring to prolonged exposure or vice versa. Um, 
And the, the outcome of those studies is that that's not particularly helpful. So it, it doesn't seem to have an additive effect to blend the, the treatments together. Why is that? I'm not sure. Is it that it makes it more complex for clients? I, we don't know. Um, so that's what, what the research says. I think in, in practice, sometimes I feel like we, we sort of make these dividing lines, like, you know, cognitive processing therapy involves challenging thoughts about safety and trust and power and control. Um, whereas prolonged exposure uses imaginal exposure and, and we're talking about processing the trauma. You know, when we're doing prolonged exposure, oftentimes the, the processing of the traumatic memory involves talking about safety and trust and power and control um, because those are themes that are common to trauma, right? And it doesn't necessarily do it in the same way as, uh, as we would if we were using a thought record, for example, but we're still thinking about and talking about and processing the same kinds of ideas. So for me, um, that's kind of the way I think about it is that there's not, you know, we're, we're taking different approaches and we're using different strategies, um, but, but the, there's common elements um, when we're thinking about the maintenance factors of trauma that we can draw upon in both. No, I really appreciate you laying that out. And it's such a good reminder, uh, you know, to, to have a thorough think through how we do these things and to, and to, you know, we are clinician scientists at the end of the day, or certainly that's what, how most of our training uh, has unfolded. So no, it's, it's, it's really good to think about it through that lens. Um, Michelle, I get a lot of questions around EMDR. Uh, and honestly, I don't really know what to make of it. Either way, I've seen some pretty con convincing arguments and evidence that, it's helpful. I've also seen some people have very strong disagreements, uh, not necessarily with its efficacy, but with the mechanism of action. And I know there's a lot of debate around mm -hmm. it. What, what's your read of the EMDR literature? Or I guess may, maybe first of all, can you explain what EMDR is? And perhaps do you have a thought on what's the latest thinking around it from your lens? Mm -hmm. So just so that uh, listeners are aware EMDR is not part of my practice. Um, so this isn't something that I have any uh, any experience delivering. Um, so you can filter what I say through that lens. And I don't know that I'd give it, um, you know, the most thorough explanation because of that. My understanding of the research literature on EMDR is that this is a treatment that works. In fact, I was going to mention it before, you know, when we're thinking about recommending treatments to clients, uh, EMDR is one of the three treatments that, that I will make clients aware of as sort of an evidence-based intervention for PTSD. Um, but I, I agree with you. I, I, you know, I'm not sure what to make of the, the state of the literature right now. I know that proponents of EMDR um, believe that the, the bilateral stimulation that's involved, so, so people are asked to call up um, a memory of, of a traumatic event, and uh, there's, there's other processes involved, but at the same time, they're experiencing sort of some sort of bilateral stimulation, either visually with a light bar or a finger moving across the visual field, or it might be auditory from one ear to another or tactile. Um, and there's a thought that there's something about that that's mechanistic. Um, I don't know that we have a lot of good, well-controlled studies that demonstrate that that's a mechanism of action for that therapy. And I have seen some sort of dismantling studies that suggest that that may not be the key component, but that this is a very effective therapy nonetheless because of the processing component that's involved in it. So even though EMDR is not part of my practice, I'm quite happy to refer someone to EMDR if that's what the client expresses as, as their preference after I've explained 
you know, what are the evidence-based therapies for PTSD? Because ultimately um, it, we really just want someone to get better. Um, and I think that that clients do better when they have agency in the choice that they're making around their treatment uh, and when when they're invested in the kind of treatment that they're doing. So Michelle, from your perspective, you know, no treatment works for everybody, right? There, there's always going to be some folks who aren't able to benefit from the treatments that we're providing. The treatment will fail them in some important way. Uh, what do you feel contributes to, to a non-response to standard CBT uh, for, for trauma? What are some of the things that you've noticed come up or what does the literature say around things that predict non-response? That is a great question. And again, I feel like this is, this is something that we have partial answers to. And I hope that we have, that we begin to have better answers for this in terms of what is going to work for who and why. Uh, I don't think we have good predictors of that, even in terms of selecting which type of our evidence-based treatments might be better for some versus others. I think we have a really incomplete understanding of that right now. Um, but presuming somebody, you know, if, if we've sort of addressed all of those uh, pre-treatment barriers that we talked about and somebody is engaged in the treatment for PTSD, if they're experiencing a partial response or if they're not responding at all, some of the things that I'm thinking about at that point are, um, are, are there any barriers that we haven't addressed? So is there something that, um, that I'm not aware of or the client might not even be aware of that's getting in the way uh, of that treatment? For example, are there, are there motivation factors that, um, that we haven't talked about that I'm not aware of? So I'm asking, I'm kind of asking those questions. Um, I think about whether, again, whether there are other symptoms present that uh, are maybe impacting the person's ability to, to, to come to treatment, to get the most of the treatment. Is there something that um, is undoing the therapy? So for example, like we talked about before, um, substance use is not a contraindication to doing trauma-focused therapy, but uh, you know, is the person drinking right after they um, revisit their trauma, for example? Uh, are they really working hard to do their exposures and putting a lot of effort in, but sort of unintentionally the, the work of the therapy is being undone because they're protecting themselves in, in subtle ways? Um, you know, and there's, there's lots of different examples of that. So that's something that I'm thinking about, um, whether there's something that's undoing the treatment. And I, I'm thinking a lot about, you know, um, ha, have I designed the, the treatment strategies in the right way that's going to help the person have a corrective experience? So, you know, a lot of um, what we talk about in CBT, it, it revolves around exposure. And I think we used to think about exposure as like habituation based, right? It's like, you know, we do this therapy and anxiety is going to come down and we're going to get used to it. And, and I think with PTSD, it's, it's, well, I think with any other anxiety um, presentations, but with trauma related conditions as well, it's really not about habituation as the primary mechanism. It's, it's really about how is the treatment helping the person to, to have corrective experiences. So, you know, are, are the exposures that this person is doing um, really targeting the beliefs that they hold? And is their experience going to provide them with any corrective information? Or again, is something getting in the way of that? Um, you know, so those are, those are some of the things that, that we think about and, and troubleshoot. But as you said, ultimately, we have really good therapies, but they're not 100% effective and they don't work for everyone, right? So if we've gone through all of the thinking process of what could be getting in the way and somebody is still really stuck, I might think about, do, do we need to change gears? 
right? Or, um, you know, to, to, would this person benefit from trying the other kinds of evidence-based therapies if this isn't working for them? So that's something that we do. Another thing that, that, I, that comes to mind um, is, is shame, the experience of shame. So you talked about that before. Sometimes shame is, I don't think shame is, is unattainable to resolve and treatment whatsoever. I think CPT and PE both do a really good job of that, but I think that can be a bit of longer term work. I was reading some research recently that suggested that people who have had the greatest reductions in shame had the best outcomes from the treatment. And that was with a specific population, but it's something that, that I think about when I'm thinking about trauma is, is what kinds of things are going to help a person resolve those very deep seated feelings that they're carrying. No, Michelle, that's really intuitive to me in terms of some of the ways I talk about trauma with clients. If we if we think about good trauma therapy or really any kind of therapy as like sort of a radical truth mapping exercise, what we really want to do is to get to the heart and truth of what has happened and to acknowledge the meaningfulness of that experience. And that will lead to the selection of the best coping. It will become self-evident what one needs to do to take care of oneself if you have a true sense of what's actually taken place. And I find what we're all prone to is to only descending down to the most emotionally convenient layer that we can tolerate. And so we'll end up mapping traumas from a layer of like, it was my fault. It wasn't so bad because that is in some ways better than, than having the stark realization of like people can come in and do terrible things to you and you have no control over it. So we'll, we'll mm -hmm. substitute sort of emotionally convenient half truths for what really happened because they're, they're, they're more user friendly, but they're not really in the long run, of course, right? Like they, they don't allow people to really sort of, you know, come to grips and grieve, you know, the, the things that have happened to them. So this idea that shame predicts a, a good response really resonates because if, if the shame has been addressed, my assumption is that in, in parallel, they have also mapped exactly what has happened. And thus the shame no longer has a utility to it in, in a sense. Shame is so, um, I think so fundamental and so uh, sneaky that sometimes I don't even know if clients or, or even myself as a clinician necessarily realize that, well, that is there, maybe how it's there and how it's operating. And I think, you know, to pick up on what you were saying, um, I think we're just trying to find ways of explaining things to ourselves, right? So why, how could this have happened? Why did this happen? Um, and, you know, paradoxically, sometimes um, it can feel like if I blame myself or if this was because of something about me, then, then maybe, um, maybe that's a way that I can sort of come to terms with the fact that this happened or sort of manage how how I think about whether or not this is going to happen again or or control whether it's going to happen again. Um, but shame can be so insidious, right? And it's um, I think that's part of what we sort of need to take into account in what typically would have been exposure-based therapies that dealt with fears. How do we address shame in those kinds of paradigms, right? So we want to think about, um, you know, yes, what is a person thinking about themselves, but how are they coping in response to that? So some people really deprive themselves of pleasurable experiences or punish themselves because if, because they might be feeling like there's something wrong with me or I'm broken, or I don't deserve um, to feel happiness or joy, you know, because this happened. And so I think really making sure that the treatment is addressing that if it's present for someone is super important. I'm so glad that you've made a point of stopping here and really sort of highlighting this because it's so, so important. 
And I, I completely agree with the idea of, you know, finding some sense of control and explanation and, and meaning. It, it's, you know, I guess it's better than nothing, but in some ways it's so cruel in a way that we, we, uh, we always have ourselves available to throw under the bus if we need it, you know, in, in terms of finding an explanation. Yeah. And that's just so, when you see a client sitting in front of you who's so clearly doing this as, as a way of sort of maintaining that control and having an explanation, it, it really is heartbreaking. And I, I agree, it's, it's longer term work to move people past that mode of coping and really being empathic about, you know, it is a mode of coping. It's how they're putting one foot in front of the other. Mm-hmm. And it's easy for you or I to say, I don't think you should feel that way about yourself. But the, 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 you know, the real work of the treatment is helping the client to be able to eventually come to that conclusion on their own. Um, and that's, that's the part that can take a little bit of time. When I say that, I don't, it doesn't mean like this is years and years of therapy. This can, this can be addressed with some of our trauma-focused therapies, but um, shame is sometimes uh, a little bit trickier to work with than fear. For a client, I, I totally agree, and, I, and you know, I think for for men in particular, of whom I've done a lot of trauma work with, shame evokes a lot of grandiosity and and, and a lot of combativeness sometimes, right? Like when the, when there's that, it's so evocative of vulnerability that the defense mechanisms come mm-hmm. up. So clinically, it can be a lot to handle. There can be a lot of very strong reactions that uh, you know can can make the therapy process very difficult. But it's worth sticking with it, trying to get underneath it, hang with it so that the person can really actually have a healing experience. It's such a good point that you're making. And and I, I think about, you know, our discussion just now about what are some factors that get in the way um, that, that can, that can keep people stuck. And I think that's a big one as well. Um, You know, how, how do I feel about emotions and do I feel like I can uh, express emotions? Because these are really therapies that ask people to do that. And if that puts someone into conflict with themselves about, you know, what do emotions mean? Do emotions mean that I'm weak? Um, or how will other people see me if I allow myself to be vulnerable like this? What am I opening myself up to? I think that can be a big barrier. hundred percent. Like we really have to keep in mind what we're asking people to, not everyone has the intuitive skills or, or has had the uh, developmental experiences to allow them to contain what's going to come up. Uh, in the context of this work. Right. Like we're, we're talking about PTSD and, and sometimes, um, you know, when we're, when we're thinking about PTSD, we're, we're talking about the story starting with the trauma, but sometimes there's a story behind the story. And you know, it may be the case that this was, um, this was the event that set somebody on this course of symptoms. But if an individual has had a whole learning history where, you know, we don't talk about emotions or, emotions make you, you know, fill in the blank. Our society has lots of different ways of, of telling us about what we should and, and shouldn't feel and express and gender-based expectations around that as well. Um, that can be a whole learning history that comes with an individual to this treatment process. And we need to address that too. Absolutely. Uh, Michelle, I wanted to spend a little bit of time on talking about clinician reactions to uh, trauma work. And I guess that there's a couple maybe threads to pull on here. The first one is I think a lot of clinicians are fearful or intimidated by trauma work because of the perception or the experience that very strong emotions can come up and their own discomfort with emotions can get activated. And I think thread number two is, Hey, what's going to be the impact of hearing this stuff day in, day out on me 
And how is it going to maybe shift my own beliefs about self-world and other people? Will, will I be able to be present with my family and, and not be sort of checked out and ruminative and having these intrusive images of what we've talked about, say, in a PE session with a client? So I guess just again, just to summarize, you know, clinicians leaning into some of the challenges and opportunities of trauma therapy, but then also how it impacts us as human beings doing this kind of work. What, what are your thoughts on that? to your first point about some of the emotions that can come up doing trauma work, I think that's something that's really important to prepare ourselves for as clinicians, because this is what we really, this is sort of the, um, where we want to end up with clients, right? We really want to help them to access the whole range of emotions that they're experiencing. Um, and I think that we need to, you know, get training and consultation and, and have experience in working with the whole range of emotions that can come up, um, not just sadness, but intense anger or grief, um, shame, guilt. And we, I think it's, it's really important for us because we're really modeling for our clients, you know, is this, or is this not okay? So I think it's really important to be able for, for our clients to be able to feel like anything that I express is normal and for us to, to normalize and to validate that. And that's, that's, that's a big part of doing this kind of work. Um, to your question about vicarious trauma, you know, I think doing trauma work, naturally, we are exposed to, um, you know, clients' narratives about all of the different kinds of, of things that can happen in life and the, the kinds of things that people can do to one another. And it can be heavy. Um, one of the things that, that I think about in terms of, you know, how do we do this work? How do we sustain um, this work is, is, you know, one that, that clients recover. And I, I feel like that's very powerful. That's a, to me, one of the things that sustains me in this work is seeing clients come through the recovery process and experience the kind of benefits that they do in doing the trauma processing. So as difficult as it may be, um, for a client at the beginning to see some of the benefits is, is very rewarding. Also, I feel like it's, it, as a therapist, there's, there's a lot of, of what we're doing in treatment with the client. So we, we are attending to the client as they're going through this treatment. We're monitoring what's coming up for them, what they're saying. Um, you know, and, and so I think we take the trauma in, in a different way because we're not sort of passively experiencing these stories, we're working with the client. And in some ways we're, you know, if we're bothered by something that is part of the client's narrative, if it hits us in some way, there's different types of trauma that might um, strike a chord with us more than others, which I think for everybody there is, um, we get a chance to see that through as well as the client works through, right? So we're not hearing this once or working with it once. Um, we're seeing the client all the way through the therapy process, which again, allows us to heal as well. But I think consultation is really important. You know, um, I think it's really helpful for us to be able to talk to our colleagues. Um, we don't share any information about the clients themselves, but just to be able to say, you know, this is, this is what happened today and something's really bothering me and to get consultation on not just the process of doing the therapy, but, you know, how, how is this impacting me as a person? Sometimes we might need our own um, support or, or, or therapy. Um, and that's okay too. Those are great thoughts, Michelle. And I would, I would only add one 
uh, perhaps would be clinicians could ha- if they have the control, depending on what their you know uh, area of practice is, uh, just to think about the dose. If we, if I can use that term, right? Like maybe you want a third of your clients to be trauma focused. Perhaps maybe people prefer the majority. Again, it's going to depend on work settings as well. But I think everyone's got to find what's the right balance for them, and then be honest with themselves about it. Right. It's like, hey, what's going to work for me long term? And it's not not what's going to work for the next year, but what's going to work for the next five years or or, or mm-hmm. 10 years. I would also say, too, you know, being on the lookout for signs of burnout or emotional or compassion fatigue, things like that, you know, being a bit more short or being a bit more irritable. Um, I, I love that idea of self-care that revolves around, you know, having a life that you don't want to escape from. Right. So the, so the, the idea is, you know, if, if you need to, I I think I've said this on another podcast, but if you need to do 10 hours of hot yoga a day, just to get through your therapeutic practice, you may want to think your mode of therapeutic practice, as opposed to doing like 20 more hours of hot yoga, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I think those are excellent points. Um, and I think it's a really individual decision. What kind of a, you know, to use your word dose, what kind of a dose of, this kind of work is right for me. I think that that's different for many people. That can be something that helps with a little bit of variety. But even if this is something that, you know, you're doing most of the time, I like to do trauma work. Um, and this, that, that's, that's what I prefer to do. But uh, really making sure that there's good boundaries between work and home, right? So when I'm not working, I'm not working. And I, I think one of the things uh, that that working with individuals who've experienced traumas has taught me is is you know really you know to 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 take some perspective and recognize um, you know what's what's really meaningful in life right these are the these are the undercurrents of these um, of these events for people and making sure that we invest ourselves uh, in what's meaningful for us and have enough of a dose of that. Um, and enough of a balance um, that that we're sustained as well. Something that you said, Michelle, that I was so thankful to hear you say was this idea that in part, not that the therapy is for us, but to acknowledge that we're also along for the ride. And then that when when we do that first difficult uh, exposure with someone, whether it be in vivo or, or imaginal, that it, it is going to be activating for us and that we also, in part, benefit from the opportunity to see that exposure through and to have our own habituation process around that. And I find that really normalizing and validating. And I know as I've become more confident as a therapist, I mean, I've been more insistent on the boundaries that I need in terms of sessions ending on time and things like that, because I also need that time to decompress a little bit before I just transition into the the next session. I can't just hear what I've just heard, go grab a glass of water and then, you know, talk about somebody's divorce proceeding. You know, I, I, I've Mm -hmm. learned, I need that time to re-regulate myself uh, so that I can you know, have a clear line of sight on what the next person who I'm trying to help needs. So thank you. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you for normalizing that. Uh, I, I think that's maybe something that we don't always acknowledge, but I think it's critical to see ourselves as being both delivering the, the process, but also as part of the process. Mm-hmm. As clients are, I'm, I'm sure you've had this experience as well. Sometimes we are the first person that a client has disclosed this to, uh, and that involves a tremendous amount of trust, right? So they are investing in us. Um, and I think, you know, to, to pick up on your point, um, the, the, what you just talked about is, is it's, it's what's good for everyone. It's good for the clinician. It's good for the client that we're working with the next client that we're working with, because we need to bring ourselves 
to these interventions. The interventions don't work on their own. There, 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 there really are, um, you know, an interaction between uh, ourselves and the clients. Michelle, just a couple more questions for you. You've been so generous with your time. Um, do you have any, and I know it's hard to sum this up in a nutshell, but do you have any advice for family members around how to best support a loved one who may be, uh, you know, in PTSD treatment or, or as yet untreated, but probably needs treatment and struggling uh, to a great extent? Yeah, oh, that's a good question. I think I think sometimes family members, um, not just family members of individuals with PTSD, but family members in general can be overlooked in this process. So I'm glad that you asked that. Um, I think one of the things that I would su- to suggest is to, to arm yourself with some information, right? So there is, uh, this isn't, I'm not, you know, endorsed or anything, but there is a really good book that I recommend to almost everyone. And it's called When Someone You Love Suffers from Post-Traumatic Stress. And it's just such a, a good explanation of how, as a loved one, do I understand, um, you know, what these symptoms are and how do they present and, you know, where do they come from? Because I think what's really important is not to personalize the symptoms. So for example, we know that PTSD involves a lot of avoid, can involve a lot of irritability. There can be impacts on relationships. And I think from a loved one's perspective, sometimes people are left wondering, you know, what does this mean, right? So, so being able just to understand it from a different perspective, I think is really important um, to access your own support if possible, right? So if you have access to um, someone that you can talk to on, on your own to get some information about PTSD or just to cope with um, what you are experiencing as someone who loves um, this individual, I think that can be really helpful. Um, one of the things that I sometimes do is to meet with, with a loved one in conjunction with the client, just to be able for us to talk um, collaboratively about, you know, what are these symptoms and what is the treatment going to involve and what can you expect um, when this individual is going through the treatment? Because we know that, um, you know, at the beginning of treatment in particular can be quite difficult, almost like, um, you know, taking a scab off of a wound, um, if if you want to use a physical analogy. And so um, that can be helpful as well, just for the person to know what to expect and, and also to recognize that, you know, they aren't responsible for, for the recovery, right? And they're, they're, they're there to support the person, but um, sometimes family members can feel like it's all on their shoulders. Yeah, I've really taken a model of sort of patient 1A and patient 1B and, and, and really mm-hmm. trying to make sure that the, the spouse or partner is also well-supported and that also helps them in, in my work with their, you know, with their loved ones. So that's, uh, I, I really agree with that. Um, Michelle, one last question for you. Many clients are being offered video or teletherapy at the moment. Uh, as a trauma therapist, do you have any specific concerns or suggestion around trauma therapy being offered via video therapy? Uh, what, what's the latest on that? I am so thankful that we have video therapy over these past uh, couple of years in particular. Uh, I, I, I can't imagine what things might have been like if we didn't. I'm also really thankful that before the pandemic started, there had been some research on can we offer this type of therapy through telemedicine? Um, because we were really able to draw on that when the pandemic hit. So there's really there's there's good evidence that we can do this via video, um, but there's no really significant differences in outcomes among people who access via video versus in person. That's not to say um, that there isn't personal preferences. Naturally, a lot of us would like to be able to do this work in person, and, and we can't. But I think it's reassuring to know that there's not going to be 
um, you know, a significant disadvantage to doing it via video if that's something that a person can access. And I, I also think, you know, I'm wondering um, whether this will reduce some of the barriers that might have been there before, like just, you know, accessibility, like if you live far away from services, um, well, th th does that need to be a barrier anymore? Um, travel time, you know, costs, things like that. Um, in terms of um, suggestions, I think one of the things, and, and I don't know that this is particular to trauma-focused therapy as much as it is to just doing any kind of therapy via video, is just thinking about, you know, what, what are the, how are the parameters a little bit different? So, I, I'm always thinking about what if our technology fails? So what's, you know, having a backup plan in advance, how are we going to work this if somebody's internet goes out? Um, but also from a safety perspective. So, um, you know, it's not common that people experience really significant difficulties in the middle of doing trauma processing, but it can happen. And so having a, a collaborative plan between myself and a client of what, what can, what am I going to do if I have concerns about you and you're not, here and we're not, we're not together. So knowing, you know, where the person is located and those kinds of things become really important and then having sufficient privacy. And so trauma-focused therapy, as, as we've spoken about, involves a lot of discussion of, of very uh, personal and uh, confidential information. So making sure that a person, if they're doing that in their home environment, has the kind of, of privacy available to be able to really allow themselves to, um, to really go there. Wonderful. Michelle, I want to give you the last word. Is there any message that you would like to get out to anyone who's had a, made it to the end of our discussion today? I think if I was hoping that people could remember anything, it would be that, you know, PTSD, um, I think one of the big myths is that this is sort of a lifelong illness that people need to sort of learn how to manage. Uh, and I, I think I would just want people to know that if, if you're, you know, experiencing these symptoms to know that there are really good treatments available. Um, and that that help is available, uh, and you know, reach out to um, whatever resources might be relevant for you, whether that's your family physician, uh, if you have some coverage uh, for benefits through work, you can access therapy in the community. Uh, if you live near a service that offers PTSD treatment, you know, it's it's a hard step to come forward, but there is help available. So well said. Uh, Michelle, I really want to thank you for your time today. It was wonderful to reconnect and have this conversation. I learned a ton. There's a lot for me to reflect on here, and uh, I hope we get to chat again soon. Yeah, thank you so much, Pete. It was, uh, it was a great discussion. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you so much. We'll, we'll talk soon. Okay, take care. Well, I really hope that you enjoyed the podcast as much as I did. If you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. And now for the mandatory disclaimer. This podcast represents the opinions of Dr. Kelly and that of his guests. Content of the podcast should not be taken as psychological advice and is for general information only. Please consult your mental health professional for any specific questions around your psychological health. In no way does listening to our content establish a psychologist-client relationship. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or corrections of errors. All people, places, and scenarios mentioned in the podcast have been changed to protect patient confidentiality. Finally, this podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing a standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast.